Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 7 this morning. You can find it on page 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. And if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. And so we have these story ESV Bibles right over there at the welcome table. You can help yourself to those. Those are our gifts to you. I got, I got to tell you, I really, really struggled in writing this sermon this week. Just mainly because this topic is so big and so pervasive that my heart was just grieved. Like I, I just felt myself lamenting repeatedly, and it was hard to just kind of write down words. I felt like I'd write a sentence, and I'd get rid of it. I'd write a sentence, and I'd get rid of it. It's just because I was, my heart was plagued by this issue. Like I said, it's PG-13. I'm not trying to be graphic here, but the nature of the topic of sexual sin lends itself to a certain level of seriousness and a certain level of maturity, and so we need to treat it that way. Sex is everywhere. From the big screen to the underground brothels, from advertisements and billboards that we see all around us, even into our own imaginations. It's on TV, it's on the radio, it's on our phones, everywhere. We live in a culture that is infatuated with sex. Sex is a God, a God of pleasure, and we must be free to worship that God. Our culture has preached this to us over and over and over again. Why should we deny our most carnal lusts? Why should we limit one of our most basic needs? Why can't I be free to love whoever or whatever I want to love, who, however I want to do that? I mean, if I'm not causing harm, then who is to put limits on our sexual freedom? It's a base level of who we are. I mean, weren't some of those thoughts the driving thoughts behind sexual revolution? Now, notice I didn't say the sexual revolution because there have been sexual revolutions throughout cultures and history. But if we think carefully about that line of questioning, haven't we seen those same driving thoughts cross our own minds when we have contemplated sexual sin? When you have been tempted to lust after another or go to that site, when you have considered maybe what you're going to wear or what you're going to watch or how you're going to set boundaries in your relationship with that other person. Let me ask you this. Where, just thinking in terms of culture, where has the worship of sex gotten us. What freedom have we gained? You know, what, what's, the, what's the payout, right? I mean, let's think about it for a minute. What? We have all sorts of new forms of contraception. It's great. It's big business, right? I mean, if we just kind of exclude side effects and ethical compromise... What about the redefinition of marriage? No-fault divorce, single-parent families, gender confusion. What about the increase of sexual crimes? Rape, sodomy, abuse. What about this? What about the, the 
death, the termination of over 70 million unwanted babies in our culture alone. Well, we got women's rights. That's real gain, right? That's a benefit of our sexual revolution. Well, with the sexual revolution came the rise of the multi-billion dollar per year porn industry that subjugates and objectifies women at unbelievable proportions so that they can produce no less than one, or, or, sorry, 11,000 pornographic videos per year. And if that's not enough to quench our lusts, there's always the rising sex trade within our borders. You know, according to a non-religious survey of college students from 2006, and we're getting close to a decade later, 93.2% of males have been exposed to pornography before the age of 18. The average age for their first exposure was 14. And that's going down. And it's not just a problem among men, right? It's on the rise among women as well. In another study, and from 2008, 813 young adults ages 18 through 26 were asked about their use of pornography, and 86% of these adult men reported using pornography within the last year, and half of that number, 43%, were regular weekly viewers. Our sexual Revolution has brought about an increase in loneliness as well. Relationships are more often broken by unfaithfulness, by infidelity, even if they're not within the context of marriage. They're still broken. And let's face it, it's a lot harder to commit because I got to keep my options open. I got to play the field. I'm only young once. Or when you think about the fact that it's harder to develop and maintain friendships because of our tendencies to objectify our companions. We are more tempted to think about them as objects for our sexual gratification than simply friends. The truth is, sexual liberation has only led to an enslavement to sex. It has promised us freedom, but it has delivered us into captivity. And at one level or another, no matter who you are, we've all been ensnared by it. This morning in Ephesians 5, 3-7, we're looking at a warning. A warning not to be deceived, not to be enticed, not to be ensnared by the goddess of this culture toward sexual sin. Sex is a gift from God that is meant to be enjoyed and celebrated within a covenant commitment of heterosexual marriage. But outside of that context, it is a slow killing poison. You know, sex is a lot like fire. Within proper boundaries, it brings warmth, it brings heat, it brings comfort, it brings joy. But if used improperly, it burns and destroys And so Paul instructs us in this passage that sexual sins, sins in word, thought, and in deed are not fitting for God's people. That's the main idea that he wants to communicate to us this morning, that sexual sins are not fitting for God's people. So let's read the text, Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. 
It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, uh, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, who is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. And this passage gives us six commands regarding the way we view, the way we practice, the way we think about, the way we speak about sex. But just like I said last week and so many times before, in order for us to really grasp this truth in this passage, we cannot simply look at the commands first. We cannot seek to just first apply the commands. We've got to get the truth behind them. Because if we, if we go for the commands first, we'll be driven to one of two ways. Either self-righteous, indignant legalism. I'm so much better than everybody else. I do not struggle in this area. There's no problem for me whatsoever. I can do these commands by my own strength. Or self-condemning license. I can never do this. I will never be freed from this sin. And so... I might as well indulge. So we must first understand and accept the truth. And so the first truth that we see in this passage is that there is to be no sexual sin among God's people. In verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us that sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among God's people. The saints are God's people, not some super Christian. It's all Christians. We're not even to speak of sex in a way that is irreverent or obscene or just flippant. Now, on the surface, this doesn't sound like a very reassuring truth. Chet, he says not even a hint here. This is not even a hint. It's not to be named among you. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know how pervasive this sin has been in my life and how hard I have fought over and over and over again to try to be freed from this. And I only feel like I'm sinking further and further in. How is this reassuring to me? Well, if that's you this morning, I want to remind you of the context So we can't forget all that we have seen already, all that has preceded this passage, and just look at this one in isolation, right? If Paul was saying, do these six things and then you will be justified, or trust in Jesus and do these six things and then you can be counted as righteous, then every single one of us in this room would be condemned because we have all failed. There's not a single person here or anywhere on this earth, for that matter, who has kept all of these commandments perfectly. There was only one who ever did. 
So he's not, he's not saying, do this. Cleanse yourself of sexual sin, and then you can be one of God's people. Now, throughout this book, but especially since chapter 4, Paul has been giving commands to God's people because these are issues that God's people deal with. Right? If we were able to be perfect, God just flipped the switch, you're saved, you're perfected, that's it, you never sin, then we would only have half of the, God, the, the, the letters, Paul's letters that we have. Right? We'd have chapter 1 through 3, done. But we don't. We have four through six. And so Paul's dealing with issues like disunity or selfishness or lying or anger or laziness or corrupting talk or bitterness and on and on and on he goes. These are issues that God's true people deal with. It was true in Paul's day and it's been true in the 2,000 years since then. So if that's you, you're in good company. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, those who he says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he writes to these saints, these faithful people, and he's talking to them about a current issue among real Christians, among real saints, among those who have been saved, those who have been adopted, those who have been redeemed, those who have been forgiven, those who have been made alive together with Christ Jesus, those who have received the Holy Spirit, and yet they still have sin in their lives. He's not talking to them in abstraction regarding something that is hypothetical or out there, saying like, listen, Ephesians, I know that this is not a problem for you. You've got it all figured out. You've got it all together. This is not an issue. But let's just talk hypothetically so we can pass judgment on these people that deal with these things, right? So I'm going to talk about the sexually immoral and the impure and the covetous, and I'm going to say, ha, 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 they're, they're goners. No inheritance, Right? Wrath of God is upon them. That's not what he's saying. He's dealing with a real current issue that they are dealing with. And this is Ephesus. This is one of Paul's favorite churches, the one that gave him maybe some of the least number of issues, one of his, uh, his, his, the, the churches that he delighted in the most. And so that should give us hope. Yes, Paul is using the strongest language possible to open our eyes to the seriousness of this sin. And he is calling us, really calling us to put it away. But he's not saying that to condemn us. He's saying that to spur us towards true holiness in Christ. Now verses 1 and 2 told us that if you are in Christ, you are God's beloved child. And so imitate him and do not imitate this sexualized world. He says Christ loves you. Christ has sacrificed himself for you as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so walk in love the way that Christ loved. Don't pervert the idea of love into selfishly using other people for your own sexual gratification. Do not walk with one foot in the darkness and the other in the light. Stop looking for your satisfaction outside of Christ. It only leads to death. Every area of our lives, including sex, was meant for so much more than the world promises you, to bring glory to God, to bring good to others, and to bring true and lasting enjoyment to your souls. And we've got to grasp that if we are truly going to understand these commands. Never forget who you are. 
Now, the first question that always comes up when you deal with this passage, okay, what are these sexual sins? Have I committed these sexual sins? How far is too far? What is classified here? We need to define the terms. But again, before we can do that, before we can do that, there is a conjunction right there. But. But. It's what connects verses 3 through 7 up to verses 1 and 2. He's making a contrast between a life lived in in the imitation of God and Christ-like love with a life that is lived in imitation of a sexualized world that selfishly seeks to use others for their own sexual gratification. Okay, So you've got to see that contrast right out front. So the word sexual immorality, when it comes to that, has a wide range of meanings in the Bible. Sexual immorality includes every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual interaction. Extramarital, outside of marriage. Unlawful, meaning according to God's eyes, this is unlawful. According to God's law, this is unlawful. It's not that we can just kind of change the law of the land, and then suddenly this once deviant behavior is now acceptable in the eyes of God. That's not what he's talking about. It is to be natural, not unnatural. Biologically, we can kind of figure out what he means by that. It's not that we, sorry, I said that already. Um, No, sexual immorality involves any kind of sexual relationship, any kind of sexual intimacy with another, whether physically or visually, maybe I should even go so far as to say virtually, outside of the God-given relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. It includes any kind of sexual touching, engaging in lustful activity, Looking at pornography, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, fornication, which is any sexual act, uh, activity outside of marriage, or prostitution. All of that fits under this category of sexual immorality. To this he adds all or every kind of impurity. So he goes one step further here. He's talking about anything that is filthy, anything that is defiling, anything that is indecent, anything that is unclean in the eyes of God. He's not speaking about physical acts as as if to say, well, look, but don't touch. No, he's saying anything that is impure, any thought, any, any longing, any image, that would make someone else the object of your lustful desires. And to this, Paul adds not just every kind of impurity, but every kind of covetousness. He connects the two of these together. And he's already spoken of them together in chapter 4, verse 19, when he says that the unbelieving world covets or is greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And though coveting can be greed more broadly, basically wanting Longing after, desiring, focusing on something that you do not have, greedily trying to gain it for yourself, even if it's in your mind. He's speaking here specifically of sexual greed, 
right? Where I want to, I long for something that I do not have. I covet my neighbor's wife. I, I seek after that which I do not have for my own personal satisfaction, for my own gratification, for my own gain. It's bowing down in our hearts to the false goddess of sex, whether that be through pornography or indulging in a little sexual fantasy regarding my neighbor's wife or even a daydream about a hypothetical person. It's even there, ladies, when you're tempted to dress immodestly to gain the attention of others. If you are longing to satisfy your soul with a relationship and you're willing to just sell yourself, to give little peaks of your body to get it. Every sexually immoral action, every impure thought, every covetous craving is not even to be named among you. Now he's not saying have nothing to do with sex as if Christians are anti-sex. Well, you got... You know, looking forward to eternity, don't enjoy sex at all. That's not what he's saying. And nor is he saying, just don't talk about it, right? Just go ahead and and keep it in the dark. Keep it our little secret, performing it there in the shadows, right? Just don't talk about it. Pretend like it doesn't exist. That's not what he's saying. He's He's saying that sexual sin should not characterize the saints, should not characterize the people of God. It's not proper. It's not fitting for the people of God. Why is it not fitting? Well, you were created by a holy God to bear his image, to reflect his nature and his character to the world. If you are in Christ, then you were chosen from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God. If you are in Christ, you were adopted by God to bear his holy name. Not the name of the world, not my own name, but his name. I'm his child, I take his name. If you are in Christ, you've been made alive. You've received the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you to holiness, to conformity to Christ, not conformity to this world. You were called to be holy with this holy calling to, and together we are being made into a holy dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7 says that God has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Therefore we are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is no mix of impurity and purity in the holiness of God. He is perfectly pure. That's why God's people are not even to have this named among them. Our lives are to be characteristically different than the lives of the unbelieving world around us that seeks to satisfy its every natural, lustful craving. That's the reason that God is present at work through his Holy Spirit. That's the reason why we're given this command. That's the motivation for why sexual sin is not fitting for God's people. And to this he adds in verse 4, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
We are to avoid obscene, vulgar, or sexual language. We're not to speak lightly of sex like silly fools or court jesters that are trying to get a laugh by sexual innuendos or sexual overtones. We're not to be flippant or foolish in the way we speak about sex. It is to be revered. It is to be appreciated as a gift from God. This was God's idea. God is the one that thought of sex. God is the one who designed it. And he designed it to be celebrated and to be enjoyed within the covenant of heterosexual marriage. We are to speak of it with thanksgiving, not with crude or silly or filthy talk. That would be out of place. It would not be fitting. I mean, if Caleb came up here and he started leading us in songs of praise to God, and he decided, you know what, I'm just going to insert some cuss words in here, we would be shocked and appalled by that, right? It wouldn't be fitting. It wouldn't honor God. Nor would we take mud or magic markers to priceless works of art. It would defile them. God is everywhere. Children's Catechism talks about this, right? God, where's God? God is everywhere, right? So what that means is that God is, there's no place where you can go that God is not there already. There's no closet There's no dark room. There's no back seat. There's no bedroom. There's no hotel room. There's nothing. The God is not there. We know from Hebrews that God can discern between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God sees and hears and knows everything. So every moment, every thought, every action is an opportunity either to do what is fitting or to do what is out of place. Everything. You know, when I finally decide to let my kids court, there's not going to be any dating in my house. There's too many, too much just junk with, associated with that word. So when my kids actually are able to court, I haven't decided how old they have to be to, to do that yet. Um, but I'm going to sit them down with whoever that they're, they're pursuing, right? And, and I'm going to have this conversation. Now, listen, remember, wherever you go, And whatever you do, Jesus is right there in between you. And if it's Claire, I'm going to add, and I will be right behind. (laughs) We need to ask ourselves, I'm serious, you know, we need to ask ourselves, is this fitting? God's here, God sees. Christ died for this. Is this fitting? Is this proper? Is this worthy of the Lord? Is this conversation or language out of place for a child of God? Please remember that that is not who you are in Christ. Don't let those things define you. If you are in Christ, you have been recreated into the image of God to worship him alone. Therefore, sexual sin is not fitting for God's people. And this leads to the second truth that we find in this passage from verses 5 through 7. That there are sure consequences for unrepentant sexual sin. Paul gives us another reason to put sexual sin away from us. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you 
with an empty word. Because because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Paul actually gives us another command here. He says, you must know this for certain. Right? You must have known this knowing is, is quite literal interpretation there. He's saying you must grasp this truth that everyone who is sexually immoral, everyone who is impure, everyone who is covetous, that is an idolater, has, present tense, no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It is past present and future. He's he's saying it's not that we're working towards being a part of Christ's kingdom and God. And so what what we do in the the meantime here doesn't matter. What what, what matters in in the present is just like, well, we can kind of live our lives and do what we ever want, what what we want, and we can kind of clean ourselves up at the end because we're just kind of waiting for the kingdom of God at the end. No, the kingdom of Christ is present. You either have it or you don't. And it changes everything. You see, it doesn't matter if people call themselves Christians or not. Everyone who persists in sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, everyone who gives themselves over to worship the idols of their hearts through these sexual sins will not receive the blessings of God's kingdom. They stand right now outside of the gates and they will be excluded from eternal life with God in his kingdom. That's what he's saying there. In other words... What Paul is saying here is that no matter what they might claim, those who choose to continually and remorselessly go against the commandments of God in this way are proving with their lives that they do not know grace, that they have not understood and experienced the saving, transforming, forgiving, gracious power of the gospel in their lives. They are not true sons of God. They are sons of disobedience. Paul points to this area of sin in particular because it is especially deadly for us in the way that it works so deeply into our hearts and shackles itself to our affections. Because we know that something more than just physical activity happens when you engage in sexual activity. Hearts are bound. Affections are drawn, right? And it's hard to strip ourselves from those those cravings, those lusts, those desires, those affections, that longing for intimacy. But it separates us from the God whom we ought to love and serve. In sexual sin, we're, we're choosing illicit fulfillment and sexual gratification over God. And that's always the choice. It is always an either or with God because he knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart perfectly. God does not give us the choice between you can have me and you can have that which I hate and you can have them both at the same time. No, he says, you can have me and you can have that which I love or you can have that which I hate without me. That's your choice. But I do not come in the package of me and that which I hate, me and that which destroys you because I love you too much. I only come in this package, me and that which I love, me and that which gives life, me and that which is good for you, me and that which makes you whole, me and that gives you true joy and satisfaction to your souls. That's the only way that you can have me. 
And if you choose to not go that way, to not have me in that way, then you've decided that you don't want my kingdom. You don't want my grace. You don't want my joy. You don't want my meaning. You don't want my satisfaction. You don't want my fulfillment. You don't want me. And that's the choice. Either or. And what are you going to bind your heart to? So Paul is saying, maybe I should ask it this way. So is Paul saying that true believers who sin in this way can lose their inheritance? No. It's not what I'm saying. We saw back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. That in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Those whom God has made alive together with Christ have been sealed by the Holy Spirit forever. And it is not possible for the one who has truly been born again to be unsealed because it's the Holy Spirit. He is the one that keeps them to the end. But it is possible for someone to think that he's a Christian, for someone to know a whole lot of theology, never truly place his hope in Christ. And Paul is warning us against living in sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and any form of idolatry because he gives evidence that that person has no inheritance in the kingdom, not present in Christ, not future in God. If someone is living to find their satisfaction in sexual sin and he gives himself over to it constantly without fighting the fight of repentance and faith, he shows that he's not a Christian even if he claims to be. So maybe I ought to pause and just kind of allow that to sink in for a minute. I mean, how's that manifesting itself in your life? I mean, what are you seeing there? Are you seeing this verbal profession or are you seeing a heart that longs for God? Not perfectly, but, but longs for God. Now, Paul is not talking here. I have to say this. Paul is not talking here about the true believer that in weakness falls into these sins. Okay, Paul is not saying faith plus sexual purity equals salvation. That is not what he's saying. At one level or another, we've all been guilty of sexual sin. No one is pure in this regard. We are wading neck deep in a cultural ocean of sexual sin. And the question is always just how much of the water have you swallowed? If you are here and you've struggled with sexual purity and you feel like you're fighting a losing battle and you read this passage and you're scared, this is fearful will take heart. There's a difference between a Christian struggling with sexual sin and the people that Paul is speaking of in this passage. He says in verse 6 that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, who are the sons of disobedience? Flip to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, where? In the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So who are these sons of disobedience? They are those who are still dead in their sin. They are those who are still following the world. They are those who are still tempted by Satan, who are following the passions of their flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and mind. They are those who are still under God's wrath. That's who they are. Sons of disobedience are those who, according to chapter 2, verse 12, are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The sins of disobedience are those, according to chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, who walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They become darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. If indeed you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Is that a description of you this morning? You see, the difference between a Christian who is fighting to put off the old self, which belongs to that former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and one who is seeking to put on the new self but falls into sin, and that person that is described in this passage as son or daughter of disobedience is ultimately one of repentance and faith. If we had to break it down most simply, that's what it is. True Christians may fall, but they seek to actively put off these sins and to put away the idolatrous, self-centered cravings that feed them. They will put it to death. It'll be a fight. It'll be a process. But they will choose God and his kingdom as better than their own. They will confess their sin to God To those whom they've sinned against, they will recruit help in the fight for sexual purity. Those who have no inheritance won't. They'll instead choose to keep it in the dark. And they will inevitably give themselves over to it more and more and more and more. Because they are not ruled by the kingdom of Christ. The reason why this language is so harsh is because our Heavenly Father loves us too much to leave us in our sin. And this is meant to be shocking. It's meant to shake us at the core of who we are and wake us up to the futile allurements that enslave us. And so Paul gives us a fifth command in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Their words are empty. Their words are vain. Their words are futile. Their words are devoid of truth and of power. So don't buy into it. Don't believe it. You know, there are those who would say that it's fine. The salvation is all of grace and it does not matter how you live. God is a God of love and he'll just accept you. He'll forgive you. He'll wash away your sins. It doesn't matter if you continue in them or not. 
God just wants you to be happy. So if sexual sin makes you happy, God wants you to be happy. You've probably heard this, maybe at just a level of conversation between other people that call themselves believers. But let me ask you this. Are you going to trust in their word over God's? Does that seem wise at all to trust in the word of men? Because you say, yeah, go ahead. When this text so clearly says the opposite. Others might try to excuse away sin. <clears throat> well, David, David sinned in this way. God forgave him, right? And yes, he did. By his grace, God forgave David. But look at what it cost him. David's adultery led to the destruction of Israel. It led to ruin. His sin was cataclysmic. It plagued him all his life. It led to the death of a child. It fractured his household. It led and pointed his sons to sin so that they carried out those sins and more. And it resulted in the ruin of the very land that he loved most, the people that he loved most. They were wounded, deeply wounded by his sin. Because don't make light of it. Don't excuse it away. Yes, God in his mercy and grace saved David out of it. But at what a price, at what a cost. Don't be deceived into justifying or excusing away your sin. Another deception we fall into. Don't be deceived into defining these terms too narrowly. If you read commentators, you can read, you can actually see this. You can go to biblical commentaries. You can sit down and what they'll say is things like sexual immorality. No, that's not, that's not this big pattern like Chet said as presented in scripture. No, what sexual immorality is, is adultery, it's incest, and it's prostitution. Okay? So if that's not you, you're free to do whatever you want. Everything else is just... Good, right? Think about what you want. Lust after whoever you want. Do whatever you want. Touch whatever you want. This is not asking the question, how far is too far? Friends, that is the wrong question. That is a selfish and enslaving question. Because I'm just asking, how much can I get away with? But you tell automatically where your heart is. What are you longing for? What do I want? I want sex. So how much sex can I get now? That's what I want to know. But that's not his point. We've seen in verses 1 and 2 that we are called to be imitators of God and to walk in love like Christ loves. So why not ask this question? How holy is too holy? How pure is too pure? Because I'm called to imitate God, not the world. Or instead of using her body for my own self-worship to gratify my lusts and cravings, why not seek to worship God and to love her as Christ loved her and died and sacrificed himself to present her in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish? Why not pursue that in your relationship? Don't buy into the empty words that argue that times have changed. And as long as it's consensual or long as it does no harm, then you are free to engage in sexual activity with anyone or anything 
whether it be premarital, extramarital, homosexual, or solo sex. Don't be deceived into thinking that pornography is not sex. You are using images of women created in the image of God for your own sexual pleasure. You think that that's not harmful? What if that was your mother or your sister or your daughter? You know, many of these girls are pressured and threatened into doing what they do. A number of them are actually addicted to drugs to, in order to get them to perform the acts that you are taking enjoyment in. You think that doesn't create harm? You think that that doesn't objectify? You're wrong. Ladies, don't be deceived by the world's standards for beauty or fashion. Don't believe the lies that you need to look a certain way or dress a certain way or act flirtatiously to get ahead or to gain attention. That is no way to attract a man. And the kind of man that you would attract that way is not the man that you want. He will use you. And don't deceive yourself into thinking that dressing that way will not lead you or others into sin. Because it does. To all of us, don't be deceived into thinking that that little fantasy that you occasionally play out in your mind doesn't hurt anyone. Because it draws your heart away from God's intention and purposes for your life and it sets it on something else. Don't buy into the lie that sex in marriage is dull or boring. You know, that it's just like you've got the pinnacle of sexual virility before you get married. And then after that, it's all downhill from there. Like the honeymoon is the pinnacle of your sexual existence. Anyone that you talk to, any Christian that you talk to in marriage can tell you, no, we start learning more and more and more about one another. It gets better and better and better. And I stop seeking to selfishly satisfy myself and I actually look to please my wife. And it's so much more gratifying than it ever was before. There's so much to look forward to. We're constantly surrounded by temptations to live in sexual immorality, impurity, and idolatry. We're constantly fed lies to entice us to engage in these acts, whether they are in thought, in the way that we speak, or in our actions. We can be deceived into becoming just desensitized to the all-out pervasive sexual sin around us, deceived into thinking that it's really okay for me to watch that suggestive advertisement or to watch that movie because it doesn't really affect me. When those things were designed to cultivate idolatry in our hearts, we may think that listening to that type of music does, has no effect on me, but what it does is it plants a seed. It stirs a thought. It turns my heart away from God to others. More often than not, we are deceived into not seeking out accountability. Friends, this is such a big and pervasive issue. You need help in the fight. You need brothers and sisters around you. You need the church to do what the church is intended to do. 
We're deceived into not confessing our sin, not enlisting the helps of others. We're, we're, we're not taking measures to block pornography from our computers or our phones or our tablets because we lie to ourselves thinking, you know what, I'm getting better. It's okay. I don't really need to go that far. It's not a struggle for anyone else in my family, so I'm just not going to do it. Don't be deceived. It is all around us. It preaches to us. Every moment of every day. And the wrath of God is coming upon it. You know, what was once unthinkable in our culture just even a few decades ago. I mean, guys, there's even a difference between when I was your age and when you are your age. It is unbelievable. Like, like... I think the first time that I was exposed to pornography, I was over at a friend's house. I was probably like 15 years old. And my friend dug out his dad's dirty magazines. It was three years again before I saw anything else. It wasn't all over the internet like it was with you guys in this day and age. It's, it's just unthinkable. But it's not only accepted in our culture today. So often it's accepted in our church as well. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Because it does. Don't be deceived into believing the cultural lie that sex is the pinnacle of our existence. That it holds out the greatest pleasure for us. Because it doesn't. Don't buy into the lies that our bodies are our own. Because if you are a Christian, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to God. He bought you with the price of the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus ransomed you from death and slavery to sin. And you now belong to him. Friends, there are thousands of other ways that we could talk about this the deceptions in our hearts. And so the biggest thing is to identify the lies. Identify the lies that are outside us in culture, but identify the lies that are within. It's because those who persistently practice sexual sin have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We must not be deceived by the lies of the world, the temptations of the devil, and our own sinful hearts. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Do not participate. Do not partake in the same sins, in the same manner of life. Because if you partake in their sin, you will partake in their judgments. He's not saying have nothing to do with them. Don't talk to them. Don't look at them. Don't do any business with them. I mean, a certain level of business you don't want to do, right? Porn sites, right? But you get what I mean, right? We're not talking about going to the grocery store. No, he's saying that though you live in this world with those who practice sexual sin, don't live like them. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Do not walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Walk wisely and in love as children of light. Sexual sins enslave us. 
And they rob us of our voice to speak out against enslavement because you are trapped in the same kinds of sin. You feel like you can't speak up to that other person who is, who is clearly in sin because I am carrying deep down that same sexual sin within myself. These kinds of sin hurt us and they destroy others. These kinds of sins keep us from experiencing the joy of God's great love for us. They make us feel guilty. They make us doubt our salvation. And so do not become partakers with them. Do not be partners with them. Instead, we are to, according to chapter 3, verse 6, be partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So instead of drinking from the gutter of this world, partake of the fountain of living water to bring true and lasting satisfaction to your thirsty soul. Now we've covered the text. We could stop right here. We just close it all up. We can go on. But I think that if we did, we would be missing out on the fact that hope is actually given in this passage. You have to look harder for it, but it's there. In addition to these five negative put-offs, there are two things to put on. And so the third truth that we need to see in this passage is that there is hope for freedom from sexual sin. Now, I say that there are two hope-giving truths that we can put on from this passage. One is implicit, the other is explicit. So let me deal with the implicit one first. The reason why Paul tells us that there's to be no sexual sin among God's people and that there are sure consequences for unrepentant sexual sin is because he wants us to live in our new identity in Christ. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness is not to be named among us as is proper among the saints. And he says this because you are now saints. You got to get that. You are now God's people. You are chosen to be holy. You are called to be holy. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is making us holy. And so he's saying, be who you now are in Christ. Rather than speaking about things that are out of place, we know the truth and we can speak about the glories of Christ, things that we can never speak about before. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, we can think and speak about these things in light of the glory of Christ. Things that we were never able to speak of before. We are given these commands to put off these former sexual sins because we can now obey them. Where we couldn't before, now by the grace of God, we can. Though we could not apart from Christ, now that we have learned Christ, we can put off that old self that belongs to the former manner of life. It is corrupt through deceitful desires and we can be renewed in the spirit of our minds and we can put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. We are warned about those that have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God but if we are in Christ then that inheritance is ours. The wrath of God is not upon us and so, we, so who we are in Christ as God's beloved children 
motivates us and it strengthens us and it propels us to put off these sexual sins. So put on that truth. Live in your new identity in Christ. He has changed your hearts. He has changed your affections. Long for the present and future joys of Christ more than the fleeting pleasures of this world. And to that, Paul adds the positive put on. Let there be thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you would think that if he's talking to people who are impure, you would expect him to tell them to put on purity, right? Which is good. And of course, we're told elsewhere in scripture to purify ourselves as God is pure. If anyone is engaged in unclean activities, we would expect him to be told to be made clean, right? Because after all, the Bible says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Paul told the unbelievers in Second, or I'm sorry, believers in Second Corinthians seven verse one. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And instead of covetousness, you might expect him to say, "Put on generosity." As we see, we are called to be generous many times throughout the New Testament. But Paul doesn't tell the readers those things, does he? He tells them to put on thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting? Why why that, Paul? Why why thanksgiving and not purity or cleanliness or generosity? Well, it's because Paul is going for more than mere behaviorism. Paul is not saying to us, clean up your act. Paul is getting at the heart's. He wants to get at the the root of those idolatrous desires that plague us, that covetousness, self-indulgence, self-seeking, self-gratification, self-fulfillment, and self-glorification that drive us to sexual sins. Those don't flow out of a heart of love for God and a love for each other. And so the antidote to selfishness in sexual immorality and every kind of impurity and idolatry and crude speech is thanksgiving. The thing to drive us to godly behavior and godly speech comes from a heart of giving thanks, a heart of gratitude to God for who he is and for what he has given us. If I am thankful for my wife, I am not tempted to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Right? I'm content, grateful. I delight in what the Lord has given me. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on this passage, said that thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. It is the response of gratitude to God's saving activity in creation and redemption, and thus a recognition that he is the ultimate source of every blessing. Friends, if you are delighting in God, if you are giving thanks, you're being reminded of the truth of who God is and all that he has done for us and everything that we have, every, everything that we have is a gift from God and we're focusing on that, you are not going to be enticed or lured towards other things. You fill your minds with truth. And so in the context of these verses, thanksgiving then demonstrates a Christian attitude towards sex that is completely the opposite of the way that the world views sex. The worldview sex is I want, I take 
for my good, right? But Paul is not being a prude here. It's not that Christians are meant to be anti-sex. In fact, we are to celebrate the gift of sex and sexual intercourse with a loving, monogamous, heterosexual marriage as God designed it. We are to give thanks for those things, to delight in them, to enjoy them, to relish them for the glory of God. So giving honor to God and thanksgiving is essential. It keeps us grateful. It keeps us focused on God as the source of every blessing instead of looking to other places to try to get what we want. Fundamentally, it speaks of a heart of worship to God and a life lived for God instead of for ourselves. Thanksgiving puts to death the idolatrous desires that feed sexual sin. We are to be thankful for what Christ has done. Thankful for the gift of marriage and the gift that sex is. So let there be thanksgiving. Again, I'd ask you to examine yourselves. If you find yourself giving over to lustful thoughts or pornography or inappropriate sexual activity with a significant other or any form of sexual sin, I would ask you, how intentional, how purposeful, how much time do you spend giving thanks? And I think that you would quickly see that there's a correlation there. You see, God wants us to enjoy him. God is not trying to take away our pleasure. God is holding out true and pure pleasure that is found only in him. And in a life of love lived as an offering to him. So today, let us remember who we are in Christ. Let us cultivate thanksgiving so that we might offer ourselves, our lives to God because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that our eyes would be open to see who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Father, I pray that we would delight in the blessings that you've given us, that we would see your purposes, your wisdom, your goodness behind every, every circumstance, every situation we find ourselves in. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we seek to find our satisfaction in other things, in trivial things, in futile things, rather than eternal, glorious, and pure things. Father, forgive us for our thanklessness. Forgive us for failing to live in light of our true identity in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us and help us to help each other to remember who we are in Christ, to foster thanksgiving in our hearts, to find joy and satisfactions in the gifts that you have given us, but not as substitutes for you. Lord, may we delight in who you are. Open our eyes to see that this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.